I invite you uh, this evening to turn, this afternoon, to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. I, uh, I, I trust that as we have been going through these Psalms at a slow clip, uh, you settle on certain Psalms that feed your soul and that you come back to time and time again and that create a, a, a format or a, um, a, a, a plan, a pattern for your prayers. Um, this one, this one, I suspect, is near the top for, for many of us. Um, those last verses that we read earlier, uh, they are memorizable. I urge you to um, imprint them upon your soul uh, that you, you, the Spirit would use them to sustain your heart during times of trouble. What I would like to do this evening um, is, um, is, is read, it, read the psalm a portion uh, at a time. And I want to begin uh, by uh, suggesting to you uh, that both believers and unbelievers can be deceived by the enemy. Both believers and unbelievers, believers for a time, can have their eyes dimmed and darkened to see the beauty and the glory of God. Both believers and unbelievers can look at life, believers from time to time, and see it as if the world is all that's there. And God is somehow so far distant that He's removed from the life uh, that we are living. The unbeliever himself uh, knows God's decree. We read in Romans chapter 1 that the unbeliever realizes that if he disobeys God, he is liable, he deserves punishment. He deserves death. And in all but most the, the, the most seared hearts, there is the haunting realization uh, that a day of reckoning is in fact coming. They know that, but the enemy blinds them to being able to see it. So what we as Christians must realize, that we must not be intimidated by a happy-go-lucky confidence or by the bravado of materialism. Because sin and its misery, our catechism tells us, does in fact gulf and gulf uh, each of us. So from this psalm, I want to make two points. The first is, don't be seduced by the bravado of the world. And secondly, fight envy with the superiority of God. Don't be engulfed or seduced by the bravado of the world and fight envy with the superiority of God. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Truly God is good to Israel, to all those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The Psalms oftentimes start where they will end. This Psalm begins, verse 1 God is good to Israel, to those who are pure of heart, and we will end up there as well. 
The pure in heart, as Soren Kierkegaard said, the pure in heart uh, is, is to be pure in heart is to will one thing. And as we as believers have single-minded loyalty to God, not deflected by the entrapments of the world, we too will know His goodness. Verse 2, though, quickly tells us that life is very messy. Uh, We see, and what we see and what we experience can trip us up. And, And the feelings that we can have when we look across the world and we begin to envy those who rage against God and yet prosper and yet seem to have all the health and wealth and welfare of, of this world, it is, it is aggravating to our souls. We envy the arrogant. We are aggravated by the prosperity of the wicked. And, uh, and you remember the distinction between envy and greed. Greed um, wants um, wants something. All of the things that we re- might read in this passage. But how is envy different? It doesn't want what? Others to have it. So that is the envy that is, that is um, in the heart of the psalmist here. And we can be self-deceived, as I said. And we can, we can be duped, even as the unbelievers are, to think that things of this world, world are more substantial than that which awaits us in God. So again, the simple theme for this, this evening is to defeat envy by being satisfied in God. Defeat envy by being satisfied in God. Let's read verses 4 through 12. This is a description of the prosperous who are wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They speak, uh, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their eyes against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. The prosperous we see in these verses seem to be enjoying life without even going through the difficulties that you and I do. They are both arrogant and maddeningly maddeningly, um, prosperous. Verse 4, they are healthy. Their bodies are healthy. They don't seem to get cancer. They don't seem to fear death until it's right upon them. Verse 7 says that their eyes bulge with fatness. One translation says their eyes gleam through folds of fat. And somehow that's supposed to make us envy. But just imagine that picture. Uh, Wealthy enough to be able to eat that much, I suppose it is. We might say that they are healthy, they have good complexion, they are buff, 
Their teeth are straight. Their children's teeth are straight. We have pictures of our three daughters at one point, all with beautiful straight teeth. And I look at that and I say, $14,000 worth of a smile there. But the idea is that the unbelievers don't have these problems. They are trouble-free, verse 5 says. And we are undone by the injustice. They are, verse 6, both proud and they are violent. They oppress people. They scoff at people. They are defiant against God. And in verse 11 it says, Does God know? What does God have to do with my life? They mock God and get away with it. And verse 10 says that they are attractive to us. People in the world are impressed with them. They end up on the cover of People magazine and people admire that. Their lives seem to be nothing but smiles and wealth. And verse 12 is really a great summary of it. And they say, um, um, they, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. I would summarize this as they hate God and still prosper. <clears throat> when we look at that, when we consider that, we must remember in moments of lucidity and clarity of thought that nobody lives that way in reality. Everyone has thorns in their gardens. Everyone has, has the weakness of the flesh that can traumatize. This is the appearance this is the appearance of having everything all together, but no one can be that successful. My point here is that envy distorts your vision. Envy distorts in the way you look at, at what you might call worldlings. Those who are children of the world and made up out of the world, pursuing the world's goals, that, that you're... Um, that envy distorts your vision of these worldlings. Satan's deception is distorting you as well as it distorts their view of this life. Look with me at verses 13 to 16. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You see, the believer then, and this is oftentimes in our own hearts, the believer is looking at this discrepancy, hatred of God, Mocking God, injustice with other people, and yet seemingly enjoying the best that this world has to offer. And we begin to then look at ourselves and say, is it worth it for me? Have I in vain been keeping my hands clean? Does it make sense to be a Christian? All I get is trouble, verse 14. Am I foolish? And then it goes even beyond this self-pity, and we may charge God. How can a good God treat me this way, and the, and the just God look away at the injustice of other people? And verse 15 is, is, is a, a, a strong warning to us. Our cynicism and bitterness may affect other people. 
Cynical words can pollute the environment in our home or in in our relationships with other people. If we suggest that God is not really good, that God may be holding out on us, unfair, unattentive, uncaring. We may affect, wrongly affect, negatively affect the people around us when we do so. But the result is, we see in verse 16, just plain, wearisome. I am worn out. I can make no sense of this suffering. I'm simply tired of it. Did you see how how depressing, distressing that is? I can't figure it out. What's the sense of following God? Seems sometimes He's hardest on those he supposedly loves the most. But then the light starts to come on. Look with me at verses 17 to 22. 17 to 22. I'll back up, back up to 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome, wearisome, wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, then I was pricked at heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. The light starts to come on in the sanctuary. And it's in the sanctuary we see God's holiness and God providing a substitute for our sin. Jesus is God's great gift who suffered for you. And so you may confidently say, you may confidently say that God will not, has not, and will not ever hold out on you. He has already given you the greatest of all gifts. Public worship is where you get your vision back. You may be discouraged by life. You may be given to anger. You may be given to envy that gets you into a funk. And how often have I heard people say, I can't go to church. I can't go there because of two things. The people are always perfect, and I feel bad about that. And I haven't lived very well before God, and I feel bad about that. And so they perpetuate a deception that somehow or other you've got to contribute to your own salvation. You come to church when you... I know I'm talking to the choir tonight. (laughs) You come to church when you are discouraged. You come to church when you don't see so that you can see. You come to church when God seems remote so that you can see Him more clearly and see His character. And you also see the precarious position of the unbelievers. They apparently are on a stable place, as stable as granite. But with those, those algae-covered rocks are as slippery as ice, and they, verse 19, are destroyed as in a moment. 
they die and immediately are ushered into punishment. Verse 20 is fascinating. It really is getting at this. They've been living in a dream. They are the ones who have not been seeing the world with clarity and in truth, trusting in the things that you can see and disbelieving in the things that you cannot see. They've been living in a dream and they wake up in a nightmare. Like that. And then the realization begins to sink in in verses 20 and 21 and 22. When you give in to envy... When you envy an unbeliever, you are as dense as an ox. I think I told you once before that I tried to wrestle a, a bull one time, and a big old bull, and, and, uh, and it had horns like this, you know, and I tried to grab the actually tried to move his head. It was, he was immovable. And, 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 and his forehead was hard as that. And, and that's a picture for our dullness of hearts when we are persuaded by the deception of the world that their life is more real than life in Christ. We are brutish. We are ox-like. Dumb as an ox with, as we give in to that envy. Sin in that funk seems reasonable and then God opens the eyes. And this, of course, is how we as, we, as we attack that envy, we now fill it with the glory of God. We fight envy with the superiority of God. Let me read now. Let me finish the psalm, 23 to the end. I was, a, I was a brute. I was ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. I see it now clearly. Behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. For I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. One, one effective way to read a passage like this, beginning, uh, beginning in the 23rd verse, is, is simply to focus on the verbs. Just look at the verbs and, and let's just think about them for just a moment. Uh, you hold me with my right hand. That is, that is a father who is grasping the child's hand, holding him by the right hand and providing um, safety as a child would give a child. This is, this is fear-combating language. God holds me how many times have I prayed this and actually raised my hand to God? God holds me with my, by my right hand. Then He guides us. He guides you by His counsel. 
You walk through life hearing the counsel of God. You resign from needing to be the architect of your own life. How many of us, say 20 years ago, would have imagined where we would be 20 years hence? And it may not look anything at all like the life that you're living right now. If you could have drawn up your life, it could be significantly different. But God is caring for you, guiding you with His counsel right now through the challenges and the glories of this life so that your faith is deepening in Him. When you enjoy God first of all, you can also enjoy His gifts. If you seek to enjoy His gifts without God, you will lose both the gifts and God. He holds you by your right hand. He guides you with His counsel. He will receive you to glory. Finally, home with God. Home with Jesus. I met with a guy uh, this past week and um, had a brief visit with him. And he ended up in that conversation to tell me that he was really looking forward to seeing Jesus. And he was saying that I want... When I see him, and it will be soon, I will bow down before him, and I can't wait. In fact, I can't wait for it so much that sometimes when I'm even in church, I just want to bow down before Jesus, because I can't wait to see him. So you're with God. He holds you by your right hand, guides you with your counsel, and one one day will receive you to glory. And verses 25 to 26, teach us, show us, describe for us how our souls are satisfied in God. This is soul-satisfying, God-exalting praise. We are content with what God has given because we have Him. Whom have I in heaven but you? And I've already got you. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. There is nothing on earth that has standalone value that provides satisfaction for my soul longer than maybe five seconds before it shows to be tinsel. Nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And now here's the goal of my life, the drive, the energy of my life. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So there is the path, finally, in this summarizing in verses 27 and 28. There's one path. It's the path of envy away from God. And there is the path of discovering the nearness of God. And maybe the telltale difference is this. Does your language, does your speech to one another in your home, on the phone when you're talking to a friend, Does it describe God in ways that underscore Him being unjust to His people? Or does it lift up God in being the all-satisfying delight of our souls? Do you notice how the psalm ends at the at the, the very last phrase, I have made the Lord God my refuge. Look at this phrase, that I may tell of your works. Please walk away with that. 
that you will tell of his works. When you are enticed to be giving into envy, enticed to be giving into self-pity, look at Jesus. What he has done for you, what he has given you, that double cure, not only forgiveness, but against the power of sin as well. So that you may tell of all of God's works. This is the sweetening atmosphere of all our homes and of our church when Jesus is in the middle. Let's pray. God in heaven, we pray, Lord, that you would take these words, this amazingly beautiful psalm. Let us wrap our minds around it. Let us um, see the, the foolishness of envying people in this world and the glory of knowing Christ, the glory of having our minds and our hearts stayed upon Christ both now and later because only in Him do we have the lasting, the solid joys and lasting pleasure. May our mouths be quick to glorify Him in our homes, in our friendships, in our church, and even to those who are still blinded by the evil one. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.